Good morning. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Man, it is such a blessing to worship the Lord together with the body of Christ. It's, uh, you know, we can worship the Lord every day. You know, we can, uh, at home, we can turn on, uh, you know, whatever music you'd like to listen to, Apple Music, Amazon Music, all the different, you know, streaming devices, and we can worship the Lord. But it's something powerful when the body of Christ gets together to unite and worship of the Lord. So just very, very grateful for you guys coming here uh, and excited for all that God has for us. This morning, we will be continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be jumping into a portion of Scripture that has caused a lot of confusion uh, through the years within the church. Uh, Many well-respected Bible scholars differ on the proper interpretation of the text that we're going to be looking at and, and really just starting, scratching the surface really of uh, today as we continue and we're in Luke chapter 21. Uh, because there are many different viewpoints, it has caused uh, much confusion and misunderstanding regarding the details within this chapter. And my hope is that as we go through it, we will be able to rightly divide the Word of God, and that we would be able to come to a proper understanding of the events described. You know, I don't assume to have all the answers, but I know that God does. And so uh, we will spend time in His Word, trying to glean from Him and look to make application to our own lives. Today we're going to continue chapter 21 by laying a lot of framework for our study of the rest of the chapter and its content. Uh, Because of the confusion that has come based upon this text, I thought it important that we do so. Hey, we're going to start our study with more of an overview, an introduction really, just to get us, um, well, before we get into all the details of our verse-by-verse study. And, And the hope behind doing so is that it will set us up. Uh, for successfully navigating through the scriptures and understanding for ourselves what Jesus was speaking about as he instructed his disciples, and and what's most important for us as well as we look to make application to our own lives. The teaching of Jesus is that's recorded in the rest of chapter 21. It's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And there are parallel sections uh, of this teaching that are also found uh, in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. It's also found in Mark chapter 13. This teaching of Jesus is, is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is believed to have given this message while on the Mount of Olives just outside the temple grounds there in Jerusalem. Although, though, although we're only going to be covering the first few verses of Jesus' discourse, when we cover, uh, what we cover during this overview will help us understand the rest of the chapter and the associated context and uh, what we're going to be looking at. And so, what we cover today will hopefully, uh, my hope is that it will set us up for properly understanding the rest of the chapter. And much of what we will be covering today will be a bit more academic in nature, okay? Every now and then uh, we do that as we go through, we study God's Word. Sometimes we do a little bit more academic, not as heavy on application. Um, And so we're going to be doing that. I just want to give you a forewarning, a heads up this morning. But I do feel it will prove to be very beneficial for our continued study. And so 
If you haven't done so already, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 21. Our text this morning is going to be very short, okay? We're only going to start uh, three verses, five, six, and seven, just to kind of get us going. I'm going to call this teaching the Olivet Discourse, okay? It is a part one of I don't know how many parts, okay? Um, we're going to go through it slowly, and we're going to look to understand it. Um, I'm thinking it might be four, but we'll see. Um, this will be more of an introduction and an overview, uh, something to whet our appetite, hopefully. Okay? If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to reach down, borrow one of the Bibles situated under some of the chairs around you. I do think it's important that you're able to follow along. And once you're all there, I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. Luke writes the following in chapter 21, verse 5. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? That's just the start, and that's our text for today. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to gather together as a church family to worship you, Lord, it, not only in the songs that we sing, but now, Lord, through the study of your word. I pray that you would be glorified as we get into this portion of Scripture. It's a portion of Scripture that's caused a lot of confusion, and we're just going to really scratch the surface uh, today, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to lead and guide us, that you would allow us to understand your word, and that we would uh, rightly divide uh, the word of truth, understanding what you uh, were saying, understanding what you were speaking to the disciples, and understanding what you're speaking to us. And so, Lord, we give you this time. We ask for your continued blessings, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, if you are familiar with Luke chapter 21 and Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark chapter 13, you know what we're going to be getting into. You know what the Olivet Discourse is about. It's one of Jesus' most famous of teachings, okay? Uh, but for those that may not know, uh, you may have noted from our reading of the text, today's portion of Scripture, along with the rest of chapter 21, is going to deal with things of a prophetic nature, Okay? When Jesus speaks in this chapter, he's speaking about things that were going to happen in the future from their time perspective. When the Bible mentions details about events that are going to happen in the future, we call this biblical prophecy. Okay? And biblical prophecy, a very simple way to define it is that God, it's God telling us history before it takes place. Okay? Biblical prophecy is God telling us history before it takes place. Now, biblical prophecy has come under a lot of scrutiny through the years. Some think that biblical prophecy is only for the crazy people, the loonies out there that go around proclaiming the end of the world. You know, people like this are often associated with the old fable of Chicken Little and his crazy belief that disaster was intimate and the sky is falling and the world's coming to an end. And sometimes people that get wrapped up in biblical prophecy can seem to lose some credibility, especially in the eyes of the non-believer, and can often be dismissed as overzealous or even misguided. 
because of the bad rap that some have brought upon the subject matter of biblical prophecy, some in the church don't feel that biblical prophecy is that big of a deal. And because they don't believe it's a big deal, they don't waste any time learning about it or studying it, or, and they really just kind of chalk it up as a minor issue in their faith. They're like, well, you know, there's so many different people think so many different things, and I'm just not going to worry about it. You know, that's in the future, and I just don't know. So I won't pay any attention to it. Although this is a view that I believe that's held by many in the church, I'm here today to tell you that that is an improper view. That should not be the view that we hold when it comes to biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy... And the study of it is very important to the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And we all ought to be students of biblical prophecy. I was researching some different websites regarding biblical prophecy and the importance of it. And I came up with four different reasons why we as followers of Christ ought to take biblical prophecy very seriously and ought to take time to understand it and study it for ourselves. And so number one, I want to run through these to let you know why this is so important. Why are we pumping the brakes and slowing down and going through this uh, text this way? Number one, okay, we take biblical prophecy seriously because of the pure quantity of it. Do you guys realize that one-fourth to one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature? Okay, in the Old Testament, this includes parts of the Psalms, the major and minor prophets, okay? They're speaking about prophecy, okay? They're prophets. Um, uh, many passages in the historical books deal with prophetical events that were foretold. In the New Testament, entire books like First and Second Thessalonians and Revelation are devoted to prophecy, as are major passages like the chapter that we're reading from here in Luke chapter 21 and its parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and Mark chapter 13. And then there's also chapter 3 of the book of 1 Peter. To ignore Bible prophecy is to ignore a significant portion of God's word. Okay? And we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that certainly includes Bible prophecy. And so, number one, just because of the pure quantity of it, this is why we're going to take this so seriously. Number two, we take biblical prophecy seriously because it supports the authentication of the Bible. Okay? Bible prophecy offers the clearest indication that the Bible is, in fact, the verifiable Word of God. The Bible contains hundreds of fulfilled secular prophecies pertaining to cities and nations, empires, and even individuals that were named ahead of time before they were even born or thought of, and it's incredible. One example of such is a text before us, as Jesus foretold of the destruction of Jerusalem nearly 40 years before it took place. Fulfilled prophecies of the Bible are backed up by mountains of historical data, archaeological evidence, and staggering mathematical probability that shows that these things just couldn't have happened simply by chance. No other source 
of historical knowledge can make the same claims that the Bible does, and the reason that is so is because no other source is the inspired word of God. Isaiah chapter 46 reads, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Verse 11 says, Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Okay? God's word will come to pass, okay? Nothing can keep him from fulfilling it. Number three, another reason we should take biblical prophecy seriously is because it is an excellent tool for evangelism, okay? It is an excellent tool for evangelism. One of the easiest and most natural methods for spreading the gospel is the sharing of Bible prophecy, In fact, in the early days of the church, sharing fulfilled Bible prophecy was the primary method for spreading the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gave a message in Jerusalem in which he cited fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies as clear proof that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. This declaration of fulfilled prophecy spoken by Peter it led to 3,000 people giving their lives to Jesus Christ as he's quoted from David in the book of Psalms and he quoted from the Old Testament prophet of Joel. Hey, all of these Old Testament prophecies were used to evangelize these people. Later in the same book of Acts, we read of Philip and the Ethiopian, in which Philip uses a fulfilled prophecy from the book of Isaiah regarding the suffering lamb to explain the gospel and that Jesus was the lamb that was slain for the sins of this world. See, we ought to study and know biblical prophecy and use it as a means to reach out to and to evangelize the lost. Fourth and finally, we should take biblical prophecy seriously because it is an encouragement for holy living. A proper understanding of biblical prophecy should lead a believer believer into living a holy life. Fulfilled prophecy is a constant reminder of God's awesome power, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the absolute certainty that promises yet fulfilled will come to be. This breeds a number of Christ-like characteristics in the life of a Christian, something Paul wrote about in his letter to Titus. Paul wrote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when we live our life with the confidence that unfulfilled prophecy will come to pass, it causes us to live in expectation for those things and to be ready for those unfulfilled promises to come to pass. If we're living with the mindset of understanding, man, there is prophecy still yet to unfold, right? We want to be ready. We want to be living for the Lord when He does come back, that we might honor Him with our lives. You know, there are a lot of different reasons why prophecy is important and why we ought to study it. And those are just four, okay? There are many more, but I think that will suffice for now. We'll leave those four. We're going to go ahead and turn to our text this morning. Take a look once again in our opening verse, verse 5. It says, Then, as some spoke of the temple 
how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, and we're going to actually pause right there. We're not going to look at what he said, okay? just want to note what's going on here in verse 5. Remember from our studies of Luke that we are still in the middle of the Passion Week, okay? In fact, we're still covering the details of what happened on Tuesday, a very full day of ministry. Jesus went through a series of questioning from the religious leaders of his day designed to trap him or to bring accusations against him, but all to no avail. Jesus was able to answer all their questions, and he silenced the religious leaders. None dared ask him any more questions, in fact. Luke chapter 20, verse 40 tells us that. And Jesus then had a question for the religious, ugh, the religious leaders to answer considering David and the Messiah, asking how it was the Messiah could be David's son and at the same time David's Lord. And the answer, of course, was that the Messiah would be both the son and Lord of David. He would be born of a woman through the line of David, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was 100% man at the same time, 100% God. Jesus was both the son of man and the son of God. And after cautioning the disciples about the scribes and commending the poor widow's giving, we read from the other gospel, we, excuse me, we read from the other gospel accounts that Jesus and his disciples, they began to exit from the temple grounds, okay? Finally, Tuesday is drawing to an end. They are exiting from the temple. And as they did so, verse 5 tells us that some of the disciples were speaking about the temple. Now, this was Herod's temple. It's referred to as Herod's temple, okay? The Bible speaks about different temples where the Jews worshiped the Lord throughout their history, okay? There was the first temple, which was commonly referred to as Solomon's temple, right? Solomon's temple was built in the 10th century BC. It was subsequently destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC when they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they ended up taking the Jews captive. We've read about that before in our Old Testament studies. They were taken away captive for 70 years uh, in Babylon. Okay? Then there was Zerubbabel's temple, and that was built in the early 6th century BC. It was not as great of a temple as Solomon's was, and so that is where Herod eventually came in. Herod was king during the first century BC, and he was, by all accounts, a terrible king. Okay? He, you, this was a, not a good guy, and we read a lot of bad stuff about him in the Bible. But he was an amazing architect and builder. Okay, That cannot be denied. Herod actually went to the Jews and proposed to them that he would renovate Zerubbabel's temple because it simply didn't measure up to the dimensions and the glory of Solomon's temple. If you read the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, you find out that he actually went and he proposed, hey, I will rebuild this because it's just not even close to what Solomon's temple was, and the dimensions are, are much shorter, and it needs to be made greater and grander. And the Jews actually thought he was lying. The Jews thought that he was just going to tear it down and not rebuild it. And so they said no, and so to way to combat that, he said, I will make all of the preparations for this ahead of time, and that way you'll see that I'm committed to this project. They eventually allowed Herod to renovate their temple, and let me tell you guys something, that the the completed work was amazing, okay? The renovations Herod brought to the temple were considered a masterpiece of architecture. 
Okay? It's said to have been a true wonder to behold, like that of the pyramids and other secular temples. It was considered one of the greatest construction projects ever to be built. Okay? Uh, historians claim and say that it would have been one of the seven wonders of the ancient world had it not been destroyed. And so we understand why some of the disciples spoke about the temple as described in verse 5. It was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Again, Josephus, the Jewish historian, speaks of its splendor, how it had gates of brass and the courts were marble and the furnishings were gold and the temple was even overlaid with gold. The stones used in construction were massive. In fact, Josephus states that the stones Herod used were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet thick, okay? And although some read that and they think, oh, that has to be greatly exaggerated, excavations of the retaining wall that Herod built for the Temple Mount show stones discovered that were 45 feet long, 6 feet high, and 8 feet thick. And so we know that Herod was accustomed to using incredibly massive stones in his buildings. I actually have a picture from when we went to Israel back in 2015, Farah, myself, Pastor Nick, um, and, and a few others, we went. Uh, and uh, this is one of the stones that's underground in the rabbinical tunnels underneath the western wall. It's not a very great picture. I know I should have taken it horizontally because the TVs are all this way. But um, you have to look at it this way. <laughs> But down at the bottom of the picture, I'm standing, I have my arm outstretched at the beginning of one of these stones, and in the back you see Farah, my wife, she's holding up her arm showing where the stone ended, okay? The distance between us, that was one of the stones that was used in the retaining wall, okay, uh, of the Temple Mount, okay? It had to be over 40 feet long. It was massive, Okay. The stones used in the construction of the temple, they were huge. Some estimate that they would have weighed between 110 to 120 tons, okay? The engineering used to build with these massive stones is still an engineering marvel today. People are like, how did he do it? Okay, it was, it was amazing. And so it's understandable for the disciples to be in awe of the stones used in construction and to be enamored with the overall beauty and splendor of the temple with all of its marble and gold. But take a look at Jesus' response to the disciples ooing and aahing over the temple in verse 6. It says, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. In response to the disciples' awe of the temple, Jesus said something that had to have sounded foolish to them when he said it. Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. These stones were incredibly massive. The thought of not one stone being left upon another was difficult to even imagine, let alone to believe it would actually happen. To them, it would have sounded inconceivable. Okay? To think not one stone would be left upon another? However, despite what the disciples may have been thinking, the words Jesus spoke would come true just as he said them in the year 70 AD. But we're going to get to those details a little bit later in our study of Luke 21. I think it's worth noting this, that Jesus was not impressed with temples made by human hands. 
Herod's temple in all of its glory and splendor wasn't something that Jesus gave much attention to. Let me remind you of this very important truth this morning, church family. Jesus is far more interested in temples made not by human hands. He's interested in you and he's interested in me. For when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and he becomes our Lord and Savior, the scriptures speak about how the Holy Spirit comes and makes residence inside of us. Our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth reminding them of this truth, stating, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Not only is he interested in us as individual temples, but he's also interested in us as the saints and the members of the household of God who are being built up into a holy temple as described in the book of Ephesians. There Paul writes of us as believers as having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Herod's temple, it did not impress Jesus. He knew that it would not last. The foundations, the the stones that Herod used were nothing compared to the foundation that we have been built upon that will last for eternity. Our lives, they are built upon the word of God from the apostles, from the prophets, and Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, the chief cornerstone. We have a foundation that will last the test of time and will establish us for all of eternity, and that might brothers and sisters, is way better than Herod's huge stones that would all be flipped over in just a few decades from when he said this. Well, this statement about the temple not having one stone left upon another surely caught the interest of Jesus' disciples, for we see them ask Jesus a couple follow-up questions in verse 7. So let's take a look. It says, so they asked him, saying, teacher, But when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? The disciples asked Jesus two questions here. They asked a when question and they asked a what question. The first question is, when will these things be? And the second question is, what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And you guys... Understand the context of Jesus's Olivet Discourse in this chapter, it revolves around the questioning of the disciples here in verse 7 regarding details of future events. Within his message, Jesus is going to speak about prophetic events that were to take place in the future from when he spoke them. Now, a lot of confusion has come in regards to just how far in the future these events were going to take place. From the confusion has arose many different views about eschatology, okay? Eschatology is a a fancy word we like to use in in Bible study, okay? Uh, It's not too hard to understand, though. Eschatology, it's an English word that comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or end. It is combined with the English suffix L-O-G-Y, which we commonly summarize as meaning the study of, right? And so eschatology, then, is the study of the last things, or more specifically, a study of the end times. Biblical eschatology involves a whole assortment of different views on biblical events like the second coming of Jesus Christ, 
the rapture of the church, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, the great tribulation, uh, the final judgment, and many other events spoken of uh, throughout the scriptures. And though there are many different views, I want to quickly highlight three of the main overarching interpretations of eschatology in order to help set the stage for what we'll be covering over the next few weeks as we study Luke 21. And so the first uh, main overarching way to look at this uh, and to interpret this uh, is called the preterist view. Okay? The preterist view looks at different prophetic biblical events like the ones spoken of here in Luke 21 and other places like the book of Revelation as already being fulfilled. Okay, they are all in the past. Okay, in fact, most preterists believe that nearly all the prophetic events spoken of in the Bible were fulfilled by the year 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And they look at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple as God's judgment against Israel for rejecting their Messiah. They point to scriptures like Matthew chapter 23, verse 36, as evidence for their view, where Jesus says, all these things will come upon this generation, as he warned the Jewish religious leaders. They say that later in this very chapter, in, verses, uh, in verse 32, when Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place as further support for their interpretation. And so if the generation in question is the first century Jews, then they conclude, well, then it was during the first century that this was all fulfilled and there's nothing left to be fulfilled. And while I can understand some aspects of this view, in my opinion, there are some problems. The biggest problem I see with this view is in regard to details spoken of in the Olivet Discourse and other prophetic books like Revelation that don't seem to have taken place. For instance, down in verse 27 of Luke's gospel, if you look down just a little bit, it describes Jesus' coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The full preterist view is that Jesus has already come back. But where do we see evidence of that? Isaiah speaks of what it will be like when the Messiah comes and when he sets up his kingdom. And he says how the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little children and a little child, excuse me, shall lead them. Okay? Now, I'm not encouraging you to do this, okay? But if you put a wolf with a lamb, okay, there isn't going to be a lamb for very long, okay? And, and the same is true if you were to take a, a young goat, okay, and put it in the presence of a leopard. That young goat will not last very long. And we don't put our children in charge of walking the lions, right? It's not like you say, hey, did you go and walk the lion today? You know, we don't do that, okay? Um, I just don't see evidence of Christ's return in power and glory. I don't see evidence of his reign over this earth as I feel it's described within the Bible. And so it makes it hard for me to believe this view, okay? But it's a very prominent view of Scripture, okay? Number two. Okay. Uh, another major form of interpretation regarding eschatology is called the historicist view or historicism. The historicist looks at the prophetic events of Luke 21 and the Olivet Discourse along with Revelation as having been fulfilled throughout church history. And so instead of just saying everything happened in first century before 70 AD, it said, well, it's all happened, but it's kind of happened throughout history. Okay. Again, their take upon these events is that they've 
been fulfilled. The view, they view details of Revelation as being symbolic of historical events and peoples. For instance, one thing they have done is to look to associate and identify the Antichrist with the Pope. And they say that the beast is symbolic of the forces of evil that occurred during the Middle Ages. And they associate the seven seals and the seven trumpets of Revelation and the events therein uh, with events of the 4th and 5th century and early Christendom. Actually, if you read up on the different views held by some historicists, you'll find that they vary greatly upon the actual fulfillment of the different symbolic events. Some say most happened by early 5th century, and others say that they come right up to early modern times. And I think the historicists share some of the same difficulties as the preterists in that there would seem to be events that there just aren't any recorded history of. Where do we see the return of Jesus Christ? Where do we see his power and glory as described in his rule and reign? I also think the fact that they don't agree upon the symbolic meanings and they have identified them with all sorts of different historical events takes away from some of their credibility. If you read some historicists, they'll say, oh, this event is descriptive of what happens in Revelation 4 5. And some people will say, no, 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 no. This event is what is descriptive of what happened in Revelation 4 and 5. And other people will say, no, no, no. That. And so they all have different views of which historical events are you know, symbolic of uh, what portions of Scripture. The third and final major view that we're going to look at is called the futurist view or futurism. Okay? The basic principle within futurist view is that the majority of the prophecies in the Olivet Discourse and Revelation are going to be literally fulfilled and they have yet to take place. They hold that these events are still yet future, thus futurism, okay? uh, still to come. Some futurists will draw parallels with some historical events like the historicists, but primarily believe these prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the future. The futurists are also sometimes identified as literalists okay, because of the belief that many of the events in Luke 21 and Revelation are going to be literal events that happen rather than them being purely symbolic like they are with the other two major views. A lot of the preterists and a lot of the historicists will say, oh, the book of Revelation is is symbolic, okay? And, and we need to understand it in the symbology of what it's pointing to, okay? Well, the literalists will say, no, you read Revelation, and that's what's going to happen, okay? And so that's a, a big difference, okay? I, I want to let you know ahead of time, this is where I land, okay? I believe that many of the details in Luke 21 in the book of Revelations are yet to happen future events, I do not believe there's enough evidence to support the view that these prophetic details have already taken place. And so I look for a future fulfillment of many of these things. And as we go through the chapter, I just want to let you know that's how I'm going to interpret this and look at it, okay? And, and I understand, okay, that not everybody has the same viewpoints when it comes to eschatology. There are some who even hold partial views of these different major views. There are partial preterists that believe most of the events discussed in the Olivet Discourse and Revelation have taken place uh, before 70 AD, but there are some that are still yet to come. And there are uh, historicists that believe that some events are still yet to come as well and that they will match up with future historical events. But the heart of both these views is that most of the events described in biblical prophecy have already been fulfilled in history. And again, I just don't see enough evidence for that when I look at what the Bible describes the world to be like after Jesus' return. And this is important, you guys. This is important to bring up because depending upon which type of interpretation you use for eschatology, 
you will come to very different conclusions regarding the interpretation of the Scripture before us. Okay? And so I just want to let you know, I'm going to look at it from the futurist point of view and perspective. All right? I'm not trying to divide, but I wanted to just give you that forewarning. Now, I need to make something very clear before we move on. I need everybody's attention. Okay? If I've lost you, I want you to you know, focus back in. Okay? The various views of eschatology do not have anything to do with your salvation, okay? Eschatology and your eschatological viewpoint is not a salvation issue, okay? You are not saved by having the right form of eschatology, okay? I know and have read of some great Bible scholars who, are, who differ greatly when it comes to their views and their interpretation of end times. But that does not affect our salvation, nor should it be something that divides the body of Christ, okay? Look, the study of eschatology is important, okay? But it's the study of end times events that we don't know exactly how they're going to unfold, okay? It's really hard to say with 100% clarity exactly how things are going to play out in the end. And so this isn't something that needs to divide us as a body, you see, our view on whether we are preterist or historicist or futurist or whether we identify as premillennialist or postmillennialist, amillennialist, or whether we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture or no rapture at all, it does not change our belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, okay? We are not saved by having all the right eschatological viewpoints. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Our belief about end times doesn't grant us salvation. Okay, does everyone understand that? I need everybody to nod your head that you're tracking with me. You understand what I said. Okay, great. The disciples, they came to Jesus and asked him two questions. They had a question regarding when and another question regarding what. They wanted to know when will these things be and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place. Now, from Matthew's account, we understand that the fulfillment of these things includes more than just the destruction of the temple. According to Matthew, the disciples also asked about the sign of his coming and the end of the age. Matthew records that the disciples came to him, Jesus, they came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so we understand that in Luke's, excuse me, Luke's gospel, when they asked what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled, it's speaking not just about the destruction of the temple, but also Jesus' coming and the end of the age. And I think it's important to note that I do not believe the disciples' questions had anything to do with what we commonly refer to as the end times, okay? The disciples are not looking ahead to his second coming and pondering the details of it. They still hope and believe that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom during his first kingdom, okay? So while we look at this, we say, oh, this is cool future type things that, you know, are, are still yet to come. That is not how these disciples were thinking this was going to unfold, Okay? I suggest to you that the disciples are trying to absorb all that has taken place the last few days, and they are asking Jesus when he's going to step in and take over as the Messiah, when he's going to set up his kingdom. I want you to consider with me what may be weighing on the minds of these disciples. 
The disciples have been following Jesus for several years now, and they are confident that he is the Messiah. By their repeated questions about who was going to be the best in the coming kingdom, and some even jockeying for position, we know that they believe Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom that they hope to be significant players in. For the last couple of years, Jesus has diverted the attention away from himself and has avoided the people's attempts to crown him and make him uh, their leader. But something changed for them just two days ago. Okay, Remember, this is still Tuesday. And just two days ago, Jesus had entered into the city of Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey. And the people sang out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! You guys, I want you to understand what the word Hosanna means. Hosanna means save now! Okay? Not 40 years from now or 2,000 years from now. It means save right now. Okay? And, and that was the heart of the disciples and the people on that day. Okay? When they said, uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord, that was a clear reference to the Messiah. Okay? When the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for making such statements, Jesus refused and he welcomed and he received their praise. The city was all abuzz with excitement over Jesus' triumphal entry. The next day, Monday, they see Jesus go into the temple, clean it out, driving out those that bought and sold. In addition to the money changers, he's flipping over the tables and causing quite the scene. The next day, Tuesday, it starts out with Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders, but Jesus doesn't back down from them. He confronts them. He brings accusations against them that they have rejected God. And then he very boldly speaks woes against them. And to top it all off, Jesus mentions the destruction of the temple. You guys understand the first time Solomon's temple was destroyed was in the context of national judgment and exile. Perhaps when Jesus mentioned the destruction of the temple, they took it as a sign that judgment was soon coming. God was going to wipe out those in power and control, and he was going to set up a new reign. Interestingly enough, the word age in Matthew 24, verse 3, when they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, that word age, it can refer to the present world with its cares and its temptations and desires. When they ask this question, I believe it is with every thought of Jesus coming and setting up his kingdom and bringing an end to the current age they were living in under the rule of the Roman Empire. Okay, When they ask, They don't mean to distinguish between the sign of his coming and the end of the age because I believe they saw those two things as synonymous. Synonymous, excuse me, okay? They would happen at the same time and they thought it was going to happen right then, okay? Right now. Man, you know, the last couple of days have been amazing, okay? When's it going to (laughs) happen? They believed that when the Messiah would come, that he would destroy all his enemies, that he would establish an earthly kingdom where he would rule and rule, rule and reign over all. And they were correct to think so. For that's what I believe is going to happen when Jesus Christ does come back. He will destroy all of his enemies, and he will establish an earthly kingdom where he rules and reigns over all. But that won't occur until his second coming. You see, God's plan for the first coming involves setting up and establishing a spiritual kingdom first and foremost. And this kingdom is for all who would come to him by grace through faith. Listen, we don't need to wait for Jesus' second coming to live in his kingdom today. Okay? Now, although the disciples may be thinking about the immediate future and Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom, 
Jesus is going to respond to them in a manner that takes advantage of an opportunity to speak of the details of his second coming and the literal end of the age or the last days. From verse 8 all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus gives details in regard to the second question the disciples asked regarding the signs of when all these things will be fulfilled. Okay, what signs will there be? What should we anticipate seeing or expect to see before Jesus is coming in the end of the, end of the age? In Jesus' response, he's going to speak of days of vengeance, days of great distress upon the land and wrath upon the people. The other synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark, they refer to it as a time of tribulation that will come upon the earth. And a careful examination of the details reveals to us that Jesus lays out events that will take place prior to the tribulation, events that will take place during this time of tribulation, and even events that will take place after the tribulation. Okay? And next week, when we gather together, Lord willing, we will begin to dive into at least the first part of those details, looking at the things and events that are to transpire prior to those days of vengeance and great distress and wrath. And we'll see how far we're able to get, okay? And again, this may take us a while to get through, but this is important stuff, you guys. And I want to make sure that we come to this portion of Scripture with a strong understanding of what is being discussed, that we may be able to discern for ourselves what God wants us to know when it comes to the topic of eschatology and how it relates to us, okay? There's going to be things in here that we get into that are going to be debatable, okay? But there are going to be things that we will be able to say, absolutely, this is applicable to us. This is what Jesus wants us to walk away with this mindset of how we view biblical prophecy and the study of end times, all right? And so I hope that today I've whetted your appetite for biblical prophecy, and given you a hunger for God and His Word, that you would be excited about getting into this portion of Scripture and all that the Lord has for us. I hope to see you all here next week as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke and His account of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for this opportunity that we have just to really scratch the surface as we begin to get into some amazing uh, portions of Scripture that highlight uh, biblical prophecy, Lord. We thank you um, for biblical prophecy, Lord. We thank you for just the uh, amount of it, Lord, and, and Lord, that you've given it uh, your word that we might build our lives upon it. Lord, we thank you uh, for biblical prophecy and understanding, Lord, that it is a great tool for evangelism, Lord, and understanding that it, it spurs us on to holy living, understanding that it verifies um, the authenticity of your word. Lord, we can be confident to build our lives upon the word of God, the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus, Lord, you, the word become flesh, the chief cornerstone, Lord. We can build our lives upon a sure foundation that will last the test of time. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just give us insight, that you would give us a hunger for your word, the things of your word, and, and Lord, that you would give us an anticipation and a, an excitement for biblical prophecy um, in the future and, and Lord, that we wouldn't have this idea or, or mindset that just is like, well, 
uh, I don't know, and we can't know for certain, so you know, it doesn't really matter. Lord, it, it is important. It matters to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd make it matter to us. <laughs> Lead and guide us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.